Church, go and grab your Bibles with me this morning and open up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 1 together. Um, if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, we just a few weeks ago started a study where we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Colossians together. So still in Colossians 1 today. And I'll, I'll just tell you from the get-go that um, this is the passage that I think I've, I've had my eye on ever since I decided to preach through Colossians. Because uh, you can make the argument that, that Colossians 1 verses 15 and following is the, the greatest, most powerful description of who Jesus is that you find anywhere in the Bible. Now there are other great ones. Hebrews 1 is great. John 1 is great. But I don't think those other passages quite rise to the level that Colossians chapter 1 does. Um, and so we're going to get to look at Paul's, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his definition of the Lord Jesus. And, and even writes it in a sort of rhythmic feel so that a lot of commentators think that the verses we're reading this morning might have been part of a hymn in the early church. So this was a hymn that they would sing and Paul incorporated that hymn into the book of Colossians, or at the very least, Paul wrote this section with a kind of poetic, rhythmic feel to it. Because these verses are not just meant to be theology, they're meant to be doxology. In other words, Paul didn't just write this to give us information about Jesus, Paul wrote this to lead us to worship Jesus. And that's going to be our goal as we work through this today. You know, there, there are some things in life that you can be wrong about and it's not that big of a deal. You, you might believe something that proves to not be true and it might not matter at all that you believe something that was false. For instance, if you grew up when I did, you probably had a, a mom or a teacher or an aunt at some point that told you that if you swallowed a piece of gum, it would take you how long to digest? It would take you seven years to digest. That's not actually true, but it's no problem if you're wrong on that. It probably just saved you swallowing a couple pieces of gum over the year. We were just having a conversation in my house uh, a few nights ago. You might believe that pineapple is an acceptable topping on pizza. You would be wrong if you believe that, but that might be your belief. But if you're wrong on that, there are no long-term consequences other than eating bad pizza, if that's what you think. But there are some things we can't afford to be wrong about. And Colossians 1 is one of those issues. We cannot be wrong about who Jesus is. Listen, I'm convinced that if we, as a church, scattered out this morning through the streets of Waycross, and we did a survey, and we went up to everyone we saw, and we said to them, do you believe in Jesus? I'm convinced that just about everyone you asked that question to would say, yes, I, of course I believe in Jesus. But what if you followed that with the question, okay, well, who is Jesus? I think we'd get lots of different answers, but I wonder how many of those answers would reflect the theology of Colossians chapter 1. I don't think very many would, but listen, this is the real Jesus. The Jesus of Colossians chapter 1 is the only Jesus who saves so if you find yourself believing in a Jesus other than the Jesus of Colossians 1, or you find your, yourself believing in a Jesus less than the Jesus of Colossians 1, you're not believing in Jesus, you're believing in your own idol of Jesus. 
The Jesus of Colossians 1 is the only Jesus who saves us from our sins. So as we study through this this morning, the question that should constantly be nagging at you is this. As we study Colossians 1, you should be asking yourself, is this the Jesus I'm trusting in? That's the question this raises. Now let me just quickly set the scene for you. You know, this is a letter Paul wrote to a church he had actually never met. Paul's not the one who founded this church. It was founded by his friend Epaphras. But Paul got word that the gospel had made it way, his, its way into this valley. These people had heard it. They had believed in Jesus. So Paul writes this letter on the one hand to encourage them in their faith. There's the sign of real faith and real hope and real love. But on the other hand, there's some concerns that Paul has. Because he's heard from Epaphras that there is a new form of false teaching that's starting to bleed into this area. And if these people imbibed this false teaching, it would wreck their faith. So what was the false teaching? Well, it was a false teaching that presented a distorted, diminished view of Jesus. So that's the heart of Colossians. Paul is writing this letter to make clear to these people who Jesus really is. Think of it like, like a spiritual vaccine. That's what Colossians 1 is. If they would take in what Paul is teaching them about Jesus here, they would be immune to the false teaching that was coming into their area. And so far, we've just kind of made it through the introduction, where Paul lets this church know that, that he is praying for them, and he tells them how he's praying for them. One of Paul's prayer requests is he prayed that they would be continually giving thanks to God for their salvation. God had delivered them. He had transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. God had brought them to life. In Jesus, their sins had been forgiven. He laid his life down to redeem them. Paul's made all of those points clear. But what Paul wants to do today is he wants to clarify exactly who he is. So who is this Jesus whose kingdom they've been made part of? Who is this Jesus who had laid his life down so they could be forgiven? That's what Paul's going to answer. So if your Bible's open to Colossians 1, we're going to start reading in verse 15 this morning. We're going to read down through verse 20. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, this is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, through the blood of his cross. Now there are, are two clear stanzas to this. The first stanza highlights Jesus' relationship to creation. And then the second is going to highlight Jesus' relationship to the new creation. 
So here's the first part. Number one, I want to see Jesus reigns over creation. Jesus reigns over creation. And we see that in three ways. Here's the first thing Paul emphasizes. He starts by emphasizing Jesus' deity. Do you notice how first verse 15 begins? Paul says, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. You know, one of the things you don't have to read very much of Scripture to come across is the truth that God is spirit. That means God does not have a physical body like we do. God can't be seen with physical eyes. He is not visible. But now Paul's telling us that Jesus is the image of our invisible God. Image means representation or, or manifestation. Jesus is God manifest. Jesus is God put on display for us to see. Think about it in the Old Testament. Where God makes clear in the Old Testament, we're not allowed to make images of God, right? We're expressly forbidden from making physical representations of God because any image of God that we would make would fall short. Any representation of God that we would fashion with our hands would actually be a misrepresentation of God. But we don't need to make physical representations of God because the perfect representation, manifestation of God exists in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't just teach us about God. He is the exact representation of God. In Jesus, we see God. And it's not just that Jesus gives us an idea of what God is like. So, so you, could say that, you could say that I resemble my dad. But I would never say, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad. I'm, I might look like my dad, but we are not the same. But that's not how Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke in a way to say that he doesn't just resemble God the Father, but he is the express image of the Father. He is the same in nature as the Father. Do you remember that conversation Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room in John 14? Where Philip pipes up in the middle of the conversation and Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father. And do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, Philip, have you been with me all this time and you've still missed it? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you get what Jesus is saying there? He's saying not, that, not just that there's a, a similarity in nature between him and the Father. He is saying they are the same in nature. To see Jesus is to see God. Imagine visiting one of those grand, ancient, medieval cathedrals. You know, with the, the high vaulted ceilings and all the intricate stonework and even a painting on the ceiling. How, how do you take all of that in? Because if you walk into that cathedral and you just try to walk around looking up, it won't take long before your neck's going to be all cranked up. You won't be sleeping that night. So what some of those cathedrals have done is they've gone in and they've put in at eye level angled mirrors so that you can walk up to one of those mirrors, look down, and in looking down, you can see the grandeur of what's above. Well, that's what we have in the person of Jesus. We have this man who walked among us, but in him we see the grandeur of God. He is the very image, 
perfect manifestation, equal in nature to our great invisible God. Which means, which means the one who Paul said earlier, who laid his life down to redeem us from our sins, the one who died so that we can be forgiven, is none other than God himself. Here's the second point he makes. Secondly, he makes a point about Jesus' authority. The second part of verse 15. Paul says of Jesus, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, there, there was a man who lived back in the third, fourth century named Arius, who was condemned as a heretic by the early church. And Harris, uh, Arius looked at verses like this and said, well, that means... Jesus is a created being. He's the firstborn over creation. That means he's the first being God created. So yeah, he's exalted. Yeah, he might be above us, but he's still created. But we know that's not what Paul means, that he doesn't mean Jesus is the first thing created or anything that was created because of what he immediately says in the next verse. Notice how he follows that up in verse 16 by saying, for. Now notice the connection. For. In other words, because. Here's what it means to say he's the firstborn. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. That means he's the creator. When he says he's the firstborn over creation, in part what Paul is saying is that he is the one who created everything that exists. Here's how John says it in the introduction, the prologue to his gospel. John 1.3 says of Jesus, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now think about what he's saying. Here's a simple way to understand it. And, and I, this is what I will often get into conversation with when I have a Jehovah's Witness come to my door. But think of it this way. There, there are two and only two categories. Things that are made and things that are unmade. And the only thing that goes in the unmade category is God. God has always existed. He is unmade. Everything else goes in the made category. But do you see how, do you see how Paul and John are both making the point that everything that goes in that made category was made by Jesus? Or another way to say it is, everything that goes in the created category was created by Christ. So, if everything in the made category was made by Jesus, what can Jesus not be? That's not a trick question. If everything in the made category was made by Jesus, then Jesus can't be made. If everything in the created category was created by Him, He can't be created. Paul, Paul's not saying here that Jesus is the first created thing because he clarifies in verse 16, He's actually the one who created all things. So the point is not that Jesus was in some way made. So if firstborn over creation doesn't mean the first thing created, what does it mean? Well, you'll find in the Bible that firstborn often is not a word of uh, chronology. It's a title of authority. So, for instance, in Exodus 4, God refers to Israel, the nation of Israel, as his 
firstborn. Now, what does it mean that Israel is the firstborn of nations? Does that mean Israel was the first nation that existed? Well, no. Israel comes from Abraham. Lots of nations existed in Abraham's day. So what does it mean that Israel was the firstborn? Well, it means that Israel had an exalted position with God. And as firstborn, it means Israel had an inheritance from God. Firstborn is the one who gets the inheritance. He's the heir. And in a similar way, when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it's a word of status, of authority, that he is the exalted one over all creation. He's the heir of all creation. That's why if you jump forward to Revelation 5, do you remember the, the picture in Revelation 5 where God the Father is on his throne and in his hand is this scroll? Do you remember that? And all of heaven is in turmoil because everybody's wondering who has the authority to take the scroll? The scroll representing the title deed to this universe. Who can take the scroll? Who has the authority to step forward and claim that everything belongs to him? And what's the answer we get in Revelation 5? There's only one who has the authority to step forward and take that scroll. And the only one who can take that scroll and open the seals and claim this world is Jesus. Because he's, he's the only one who can claim the title firstborn. He's the only one who has the status of being exalted above every created thing. Here's another example of how firstborn is often used in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 89, verse 27. This is a psalm about David and the coming son of David. Psalm 89, 27. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, pause there for a minute. So, would it be right to say David was the firstborn? What Was David the firstborn son in his family, those of you who know David's story? No, David was actually the youngest of his brothers. Like, I think it was the seventh-born son. So, what would it mean to call David the firstborn? Well, it would mean David was exalted as king. What would it mean to call David's son the Messiah the firstborn? Does that mean that the Messiah would be the firstborn one in the line of David? Well, no, there were lots and lots of other descendants who would come before the Messiah. So what does firstborn mean? Well, do you see how it's defined for us in that Psalm 89, 27 verse? Here's what firstborn means. It means he is the highest of the kings of the earth. So get that title. When you come across Jesus being called the firstborn, it's not about chronology. It's about rank. It's making a point about the supremacy of Jesus. He is the exalted one above all of creation. And he is the one who is the heir of all creation. He's the firstborn. Look at the entirety of verse 16 again. I just read part of it. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Get the connection now. So Jesus is the ruler of creation because Jesus is the author of creation. So that Paul says... Everything that exists was created by Jesus. He uses the word all. And in case you wonder what he means by all, he clarifies. And Paul says what he means is, it means Jesus created everything in the heavens and everything on earth. It means Jesus created everything visible and everything invisible. So that means Jesus is the creator of everything in the physical world. 
Anything you could study with a microscope or marvel at through a telescope was made by Jesus. This earth we live on, made by Jesus. This, this solar system we live in with the other eight, nine, I don't know what it is now, eight or nine planets made by Jesus. Our sun that's so big you could fit 1.3 million earths inside of it, made by Jesus. Our galaxy that has not only our solar system, but almost 4,000 other solar systems made by Jesus. Scientists now say they think there are about 200 billion other galaxies out there, all made by Jesus. So there's nothing in this physical world that was not made by Him, and Paul wants us to know, there's nothing in the spiritual world that wasn't made by Him. That's why Paul says it's both visible and invisible. Did you notice the words that he uses in that verse? The words thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Those, those words are usually used in the Bible to describe different ranks and orders of angelic beings. Be it holy angels or fallen angels. And Paul wants us to know that every single one of them was made by Jesus. Which means, listen, which means Jesus isn't just another angel. Jesus is the creator of the angels. Jesus isn't the yin to Satan's yang. He's not Satan's opposite and equal. He is not Satan's brother. He is Satan's creator. So that Paul is driving home the point, everything visible and everything invisible, everything you can see, everything that exists, it was all made by this exalted Lord Jesus. Which means Jesus has absolute authority over the spiritual realm. This is why when Jesus lived his life, you find, you find demons falling down before him in terror, and you find angels falling down before him in worship. It's because they all realized they were standing before their creator. So let me ask you this question. Is that the Jesus you're trusting in? Are you trusting in the Jesus who is exalted above all, shares equal nature with the Father, created everything that exists? Well, that's the only Jesus that actually exists and actually saves. Here's the third thing. Third, he makes a point about Jesus' centrality. Paul wants us to know that not only was everything created by Jesus, but did you notice that last phrase of verse 16? Where he says, all things were created through him and for him. What does it mean to say that everything was created for Jesus? It means that Jesus is the end game of creation. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of Jesus. I know we're trained to go through life thinking that everything exists for us. Right? Even as Christians, we're trained to go to the beach and look at the sunset or go to the mountains and look out at the vistas and think, wow, I can't believe God made all this just for me. Well, he didn't make it for you. You get to enjoy it, but it's not for you. It's not about you. Everything that exists, exists for Him. And guess who's included in that everything? You are. I am. Which means the whole reason we exist is for Him. The whole point of life is to bring Him glory. Paul says something similar in Romans 11. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. 
Paul says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. All things are for him. We exist for him. Okay, so what does that mean? So how should that affect how I live? Well, what does Paul say in the very next verse in Romans? Anybody know? How does Romans 12, which is the next verse in the text, how does it begin? It begins with Paul saying, So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the fact that I exist for Jesus means I'm supposed to live my life as a living sacrifice. Every day is me putting my existence on the altar to be lived for His glory. Because everything that exists, exists for Him. Verse 17. Paul says, and he is before all things. That means Jesus existed when nothing else existed. It makes you think of the conversation. You remember the conversation Jesus had with the religious leaders in John 8? Where he's having a conversation and they are finding so much pride in their connection to Abraham. They were Abraham's descendants. And then Jesus starts talking about Abraham like they knew each other. But Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus did. And so when the religious leaders start pushing back against that, do you remember what Jesus says to them? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning he existed long before Abraham existed. And he even has the audacity to take for himself the name of God. I am. Jesus existed when nothing else existed but God because Jesus is God. Second part of verse 17. Paul says, and in him all things consist. Consist means in him all things are held together. So this is no, this is no deistic God. You know what deism says. It says... That God made the world and then sort of backed off. Like you would wind up a kid's toy and set it down and let it run its course. That's not who this God is. Jesus not only made everything, he's the one who keeps it all from unraveling. The only reason that everything in this universe doesn't the next moment stop existing is because he holds it together. The way the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 1 is that he, that he upholds the world by the word of his power. Everything is upheld by the power of Jesus. Everything is held together by the will of Jesus. He is creator. He is ruler. He is sustainer. Is that the Jesus you're trusting in? Well, here's the second stanza. Secondly, Paul lets us know that Jesus reigns over the new creation. And again, he's going to make that point in three ways. Look at verse 18. Paul says, and he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, do you notice the shift that's happening there? So up to this point, he's been talking about Jesus' rule over creation. So you might expect Paul to come to verse 18 and say, and he's the head of the universe. But that's not what he said. He, he shifts gears and says, and he is the head of the church. 
So, so not only is he the ruler of the cosmos, he's the ruler of the church. What's the church? It's this called out assembly of people who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. This assembly of people whose hearts have been made alive, who've come to Christ in faith to know him and follow him and worship him forever. That's the church. And the Bible often likes to describe the church as the body. Right? You, you get that language everywhere. That when you become a Christian, you're made part of this new organism and we're all the body parts of the body, uniquely gifted to fulfill the purpose of making disciples. You get that language everywhere in the Bible. And you get the language in the Bible that the body needs all the different parts. That my thumb needs my index finger. And without the index finger, the thumb suffers. You, you've heard all of that. But our bodies can get by without a lot of the parts working well. We experience that practically in church life. Your, your body can get by with all the body parts except one. You can have a heart transplant and a liver transplant, but there is no head transplant. Without the head, the body dies. And Paul's making the point that this is Jesus' relationship to his church. He's the one who gives life to his people. He's the one who rules over his people. He's the one who has authority over his church. Without the head, the body dies. So this great God who created and rules over the universe, Paul is saying, has now taken a special interest in his church. This God who created the stars and the galaxies has now in a unique way turned his attention to his people. In fact, what is Jesus' mission right now? How did he define it? Do you remember? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And Paul says he is the beginning. Talking about the church, he's the beginning of the church. Jesus was there at the beginning bringing the universe to life and he's been there from the beginning bringing his church to life. If you're part of the body of Christ, you're in the body of Christ because he made you alive. You didn't birth yourself again. You didn't make yourself come to life. We serve a sovereign Lord who spoke life out of death and brought you to life in his kingdom. He's the author of life and he is the author of new life. It's in him that we have a new beginning. And Paul says he is the firstborn from the dead. Now what does it mean that he's the firstborn? Does that mean he's the first one who was raised from the dead? Was Jesus the first person we see in the Bible raised from the dead? Those of you who've been here on Sunday nights, just last Sunday night, we read a story in 2 Kings about a woman's son being raised from the dead. So firstborn from the dead can't mean he's the first thing raised so what does it mean? Well, the same thing we saw earlier. It's a title of authority. Firstborn of the dead means he has supremacy over death. He rules over death because he conquered death. He took the sting of death. He ripped open the jaws of the grave. And he came out in a new glorified body never to die again. And as head, that's what he now promises to give to his body. Everyone who is now connected to Jesus by faith is promised to receive the same sort of glorious resurrection. And then Paul says that in all things he may have the preeminence. That means that in everything he would be first place. In everything. Our, our cry as Christians is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our proclamation. 
So what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? This is what it means. It means that Jesus has first place in everything. He has first place in my marriage. He has first place in my worship. He has first place in my child raising. He has first place in my work. He has first place in my conversations. He has first place in my relationships. He has first place in everything. So the cry of a heart that has genuinely been converted is this. That in all things you may have the preeminence. Here's the second thing Paul, point Paul makes about his reign over the new creation. He again makes a point about Jesus' deity. Look at verse 19 again. For, now notice again the word for, which is connecting it to verse 18. So Paul just said, Jesus is to have the preeminence in everything. Well, why? Why should Jesus be first place in everything? Here's the answer. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. In other words, here's the simple explanation of why Jesus should have first place in everything. You ready? Because He's God. So because He's God, He gets first place in everything. And Paul could have made a point about Jesus' deity if he would have just said, he could have simply said, in Him deity dwells. Right? If he said that, then you would think, okay, Jesus has at least some deity. So he's divine in some way. But Paul doesn't just say, in him deity dwells. What does Paul say? Paul says, in him the fullness dwells. In other words, in him the fullness of deity. In him the fullness of God dwells. So he's not mostly God. He's not like God. He is fully God. His fullness dwells. That language makes you think of all the Old Testament stories. You remember where Israel would build tabernacles and later build a temple so that God's presence could dwell with His people. Some of you will remember just a few months back, we were in 1 Kings looking at Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. And when the temple was finished... Solomon had that big uh, dedication service where everybody came together to dedicate the temple. And you remember how as Solomon was dedicating the temple, it's like he began thinking about the greatness of God. And in the middle of the dedication, Solomon said, Lord, this temple can't contain you. In fact, the heavens and the earth can't contain the fullness of who you are. Think about that. All of the universe can't contain the fullness of who God is. And yet now Paul is telling us that the fullness of who God is is concentrated and put on display in the person of Jesus Christ. He possesses the full complement of divine attributes. Everything about God, everything who God is, is on display in the person of Christ. That's his deity. Again, is that the Jesus you're trusting in? And then here's the final point. Third, Paul makes a point about Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 20. Paul says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of of his cross. Now there's something that's being assumed in verse 20. When Paul uses the word reconciled, what's being assumed there? The word reconcile assumes that a relationship has been broken. 
So if you came up to me after the service and said, hey, I want, I want to reconcile you and your wife, I would look at you like you're crazy because my relationship with my wife is not broken. We're not estranged. The only relationship that needs reconciled is a relationship that has first been severed. And verse 20 makes the point that that's where our relationship with God stands. It's what our sin has done. Rather than living like Jesus is preeminent, we live like we're the preeminent ones. And because of that, a wall of hostility has dropped between us and God. And I should quickly say, not only has our sin affected us, our sin's affected everything in creation. Everything in the universe. It's like when sin entered creation, everything got thrown off kilter. So that nothing is the way God originally made it to be. Everything's been thrown off. Read the curses in Genesis 3. Romans 8 says, all creation is groaning now under the effects of sin. But Paul's telling us now that Jesus is going to bring order out of the chaos. Jesus is going to restore creation to what it was meant to be. In fact, the Bible says that one day, Jesus is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation. And get the connection now. And Paul's saying the proof that one day there's going to be a new creation, the proof of that is that right now Jesus is in the business of making a new people. That's why that's the connection to the church here. So, so right now Jesus is showing his power to make all things new in that he's doing this work of making people new. He's taking people who were dead in sins and making them alive. He's taking people who were enemies of God and making them worshipers of God. So it's like Jesus is he's remaking a people as his first step of remaking all things. And the way we're reconciled to God, according to Paul, is we're reconciled through the blood of his cross. That means we're reconciled to God only through the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place. Which means the one who created every mountain and every valley and every stream and every hill was crucified on a hill for the whole world to see. The one who created every tree and every forest was nailed to a tree to take the place of sinners. The one in whom the fullness of God dwells voluntarily laid down his life to reconcile us to God. The, the deity of Jesus who died for us is reflected so well in some of the older hymns. Think of Isaac Watts writing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my, what's the next word? My sovereign die. That's who was dying on the cross, our sovereign. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Watts goes on and says, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died. For man, the creature, sin. What are we seeing at the cross? We're seeing Christ, the mighty maker, who died for the sins of his creation. Again, is that the Jesus you're trusting in? And not only are we reconciled to God through Jesus, but Paul's saying in verse 20 that all of creation will be reconciled. That means all of creation will be brought back into its proper alignment. 
It'll all be restored to what it was meant to be. One day we're going to have a world that is in perfect order and perfect harmony. Everything's going to function the way God intended for it to function. There won't be any more rebellion. On that day, those, those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who he is now, Philippians 2 says, they'll be forced on that day to bend their knee and to declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who refuse to acknowledge him now, who steal their hearts and harden their wills and will not turn to him in faith, will on that day be cast into the lake of fire forever. That there will be no rebellion allowed in the new creation. He will have the preeminence. So I ask again, is this the Jesus you're trusting in? You may have claimed to be a Christian for your whole life, but this isn't the Jesus that you had in mind. You might would have said to everybody who asked you, well, of course I'm a Christian, of course I'm a follower of Jesus, but your idea of who Jesus is is a far cry from who Jesus really is. And make sure you get this point. There is only one Jesus who saves. It's not the Jesus of your invention. It's not the Jesus of your imagination. It's the real Jesus who is the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe the call of Scripture to you this morning is to repent of worshiping an idol of Jesus. Repent of worshiping a Jesus who cannot and will not save you. And turn in faith to this Jesus, God manifest, creator of all things, who reigns in power and might and sovereignty and yet laid his life down to redeem sinners. Bend your knee and trust in this Jesus. This is a Jesus worthy of trust. This is a Jesus worthy of worship. Who is the Jesus you're trusting in?